Thank you everyone for returning. If you were here this morning, it's great to have you back again. It will be lonely without you. So thank you for that. And if you were here this morning, you will know that we were dealing with a particular topic and we're continuing with the same kind of theme. There is an old song that some of you will remember if you can cast your mind back to many years ago that was very popular and that is in times like these. And a certain man who lived well over 100 used to sing that at the Billy Graham rallies, Bev Shea. In times like these, you need a saviour. Well, in times like these, what kind of times? Well, certainly difficult times. So we tried to address that this morning from God's word. We couldn't give the definitive answer because there's far too much involved. But we could look at the psalmist in Psalm 81 and the difficult times that he needed to address and how he could handle them so that in the soundness there would be a sweetness. He would find honey in the rock in a desert and a wilderness place. And we tried to explore that together. And it's been good to have some feedback from some of you as the consequence and outcome from that time this morning. This evening, we're moving on to another time which you'll be familiar with. And that's going to take us into Habakkuk as we look at disappointments this evening. And we will take that Bible reading and we'll put it into its overall context because that's the only way in which we're going to be able to understand this and get some practical benefit from it. Last year, I was asked if I would help into analyzing and critiquing a series of new Bible commentaries that were about to come out. In fact, they will be published in the next few weeks. It was a lawyer who, in his retirement, had turned his attention and his clinical way of thinking to the Word of God. And I worked my way through this series of commentaries and made comments here and there almost on every chapter, which he appreciated. And I did it for free because I just like doing that kind of thing anyway. But then he made contact with me and said, I'm very grateful for what you have done. I would like to gift you with a brand new personal computer. So I emailed him back and said, that is really nice of you to think in that way. But I do have a computer and it's less than two years old. I really don't need one. So thank you. And he immediately emailed back and he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want the blessing of being able to give. So name the kind you want and I will send you the money for it. Well, I knew there was no arguing with this and I also knew a good place where I could give my personal computer where it would really come in handy. So I got that new computer and I can tell you it is absolutely brilliant. It is so fast. It covers a vast range of things that I would do and what I would want to do. And I just knew when I looked at that new computer and it was all set up for me that now I would never ever be disappointed in my life ever again because I have got this brand new with it gimmicky full computer. Question, 
Was that true or false? We all know the answer to that, don't we? But isn't that how so very often we think? Isn't that human nature? We often think that if we can just have this experience or this relationship or this circumstance working out in this way in our life, then everything is going to be wonderful for us. And we then discover there are other things that we would like. And even the things that we've got can end up being a disappointment to us. It's a rare person who, when their cup overflows, doesn't wish that they'd got a bigger cup. Now, the reason I bring that up is I am going to make a prediction this evening, and I know that this prediction will be true for every single one of us. Are you ready for this? I am going to turn from being a preacher into a prophet for the next few moments. This is me prophesying over you right now. In your future, there will be times when you're disappointed. Now, I know you're all looking at me and thinking, what an amazing oracle this man is. We're going to have to hang on his every word now because he tells the truth like it is, and you're not, are you? Because it's pretty obvious that that is going to happen to us, and that is the rub. Yes, it is obvious, but how do we handle the tough moments, and the way in which we handle them, or at times the way in which we do not handle them but should, will be the making or breaking of us. And that's why I want us to turn to Habakkuk, because it can help us. Because if ever a man is in a confusing and bewildering set of circumstances, which, by the way, are happening over more than 20 years in his life, and somehow or the other, he's got to handle that situation. And if you will check out chapter 3 and verse 18, you will find he moves from his disappointment to a situation where he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I think I speak for you all as I speak for myself when I say I am interested, very interested in how he can move through and from his disappointments over so many years to come to that point where despite what is happening, he is able to rejoice or say, I will rejoice. Aren't we interested in how he gets to that? Of course we are. Two things mark Habakkuk as different from all the other prophets that there were in Old Testament days. One is, this is the record of his prayer life. If you want to get to know somebody, don't talk to them, just listen to them praying to our Heavenly Father. And then you will understand something of the heartbeat of that individual. So we know quite a bit about this man because he's giving us his prayer journal. And the other thing is, he's not a preacher, but an advertiser. He wrote down what God was saying was the answer to this nation in its bewildering, needy situation. 
He put it on placards so that as the nation was running away into exile from an invading army, they would get the message from God. He was an advertiser. Now, an advertising executive was on a conference traveling from London, England to New York City. And every day of that conference, he would walk from his hotel through the park passing by a blind man who was begging to the conference center. On the way back to his hotel, he saw that he really hadn't done very well in his begging. So on the final day, he stopped and he said, excuse me, sir, I'm in advertising. Would you mind if I take that bit of cardboard saying that you're begging And I add just four words to it because I'm quite sure that will help you to actually get more money. He said, well, I can't be doing any worse than I am already, so you go ahead. And so he added to the words, I am blind, this. It is spring and I am blind. And when he went back to his hotel... Later that afternoon, he discovered he really had done better because of his placard. Do we realize that we don't need to be a preacher to be a communicator? Can you write a letter? Can you send a text? There's all sorts of different ways in which God can use us as a communicator. Thank God that there is no mold. When I was new to Christianity... Almost immediately, I sensed that I needed to be communicating this to people. I really didn't know how to do that. And so I studied the people who I thought did know. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I want to be honest. I looked at how the late great, to my mind, Billy Graham communicated. And I thought, if I am to be a preacher, I must be like Billy Graham. So I noticed he had his hand in his pocket with his thumb out. You look at the early black and white footage of him. That's how he communicates. So I put my hand in my pocket with my thumb out. I mean, how are you going to get the anointing of God on your ministry if you don't have your hand in your pocket with your thumb out? I noticed that he held up his Bible a great deal and he would point at it and say, the Bible says. So I held up my Bible a great deal and did exactly the same thing. And I am very grateful for an elderly lady. I have been given the opportunity to speak at a mission hall in Tottenham, North London. There were, I suppose, maybe 35 or 40 people there, quite small. One central aisle, and with great sincerity, I gave them my Billy Graham style of message. And as I was walking down the central aisle, this elderly lady started to walk toward me. I think she was going to the kitchen to make me a cup of tea, but she was obviously hard of hearing because she spoke in a very loud voice, and everybody would have heard what she said. She said, well, young man... We can't all be Billy Graham, can we? And I needed to hear that. Because I needed to realize God has made me, me. I am a unique human being. No one else in human history will ever be like me. 
Even identical twins, when you get to know them, are not that identical. But this means that I can offer to God something that no one else can ever offer to God, past, present, or future, because I am a unique human being created by God for his great purposes. And Habakkuk was to make posters and get a herald and to run around with those posters. That was a different way to other prophets as how they prophesied. And God will not say in eternity, Derek Stringer, why were you not like Moses? Or why were you not like the Apostle Paul? But he will say, why were you not like the Derek Stringer that I intended you to be? So that's the man who is communicating here. And the book starts with Habakkuk's disappointment. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? By the way, the word violence there by a man in the Middle East. Do you know what it is? Hamas. So he's saying, why is there Hamas in this situation? And the aggression that we are feeling at this time. And you're not helping us. And remember, this is after many years, at least 20. Some people looking at this, understanding the history, think perhaps 22 years of crying out and asking, God, why? Why? Like Habakkuk, we believe God is just. And that causes us to ask, why do you make me look at injustice? Now, Habakkuk's doubts and disappointments are honest. When an atheist doubts, he starts to think that God might be there after all. A little boy said to his atheist parents, Mum, Dad. Do you think God knows we don't believe in him? Atheists don't feel disappointment in God because they don't believe in him in the first place. They expect nothing. But we commit our lives to God and expect something. So when what we anticipate doesn't happen, surely it's understandable that we end up being confused and saying, why? Now, Habakkuk brings his questions to God, and so can we. And God's answer left him utterly amazed. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. Habakkuk is praying, God, do something. Look at the greed, look at the selfishness, look at the pride, look at the arrogance, look at the violence. Look at it all. Look at the mess that we are actually in. We need a revival. We need a change within our community. Our politicians are making a mess of things, Lord. That's what he was saying. Lord, you've got to do something to sort this situation out. The police can't cope with this situation. That's what he was saying. And God says, I am raising up a situation here. I am doing something. But when I tell you what I'm doing... You're not going to like it. Come on, God, you've got to be doing something here. I'm going to bring justice through those that are unjust. Now, this is an answered prayer. 
You see, it's very different between getting no answer and getting the answer no when you pray. And he wasn't getting the result that he wanted, but he was getting a response. But no wonder Habakkuk moves from disappointment to dismay. And from verse 12, he builds his argument carefully. Are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. That's true. Babylon was ordained to punish Judah, but God had his hand upon those people, and they did return from exile. And then he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. That was not true. God could stand by and tolerate wrong in this fallen world. He does it today. Doing it all the time. Looking at those things that he hates. Those things that are unjust. Those things that are wrong. And he doesn't automatically move in turning us into robots. Sometimes people say to me about God. How can he be a God of love when all of these things happen? What they're asking for of course is God not to be love. He's too loving to step in too early and to deal with all of those things. He's giving people opportunity to repent and return to him. But imagine a commando in World War II behind enemy lines. And his task is to destroy a bomb factory that is ruining cities. And he sees a soldier preparing to execute one civilian. Now he could stop it. By shooting the soldier. But at what cost? Is it possible that a lot of pain God allows on planet earth as it is. For exactly the same reason that he has got something bigger in his mind. A different perspective to what we have. But Habakkuk's question is God. Is this fair This surely isn't right. God is actually saying, I told you you wouldn't believe me. But this is the way I'm going to function. And I know a lot of people just like you do who pull the plug on God because God just doesn't perform in the way in which they believe that he should perform. And how they will talk about being angry at God. Now ask the questions because God can handle that. Ask the questions, but don't turn from God. Turn to him. And this is what Habakkuk does. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. One of the hardest things, in fact, two of the hardest words, I reckon, For us all to hear are the words watch and wait. Does anybody beside me hate to wait? You know those phone options and that bland music that you get while you have to work your way through all those options and then at the end of it you're still in the queue and you're waiting. And the one person who never see in the doctor's waiting room is the doctor waiting. Author John Orkberg says that for many years, the late Dallas Willard, a great philosopher, 
Christian man was his mentor. And on one occasion they were meeting and Altberg said, what can I do with the increasing pressure in my life? And Dallas Willard replied, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So he wrote that down and he said, what's next? And Dallas Willard replied, there is nothing else. The single greatest barrier to experiencing God is hurry. And most of us think hurry is a good thing. But consider this. We can't really hurry and smile at the same time. Have you noticed that? Very hard to be busy and hurrying from one thing to another and to smile. We can't really hurry and show compassion. And we're not storing up extra time. We're just storing up impatience and frustration when things don't work out in the time scale that we have set. We're releasing adrenaline, so we're going to end up feeling more stressed. God doesn't call us to do a life that we do not have time for. Let's eliminate hurry from our lives. Let's wait upon the Lord. Be still before him and to know that he is God. And God will see how serious we are about the issues that there are in our lives. But Habakkuk's dismay is obvious. I'm not satisfied with this answer, God. I don't think this is right. You shouldn't be using a people who are worse than us to deal with us so that tough times become even more tough for us. What happens next? God didn't change his mind. And the nation did go into exile, but Habakkuk got an answer. God makes a declaration. And there is a herald who is to make sure that that message gets out and the nation on the run will get that message. Babylon was being used to judge Judah, but they in turn would be judged. And the message that comes through loud and clear is at the end of the fourth verse in the second chapter, the righteous will live by his faith. Three times the New Testament quotes this verse. Indeed, the New Testament says, we have not grasped what the gospel is all about. If we do not understand this verse, Romans builds completely on this particular verse as a foundation there in chapter 1 of Romans. You're not going to understand how your faith works, Paul says to the Galatians, unless you understand this verse. And you're going to start drifting rather than being decisive and going forward and growing in your Christian experience. To find rest, you'll end up being restless. Unless you understand this, says the writer to the Hebrews. It's that important. Now, the word faith is only used three times in the Old Testament. This particular word. The other words are to do with believe, and they are different. But it always means to be faithful, even when it looks bad. It's the word for a married couple still married after all of those years, like the couple I heard of. 
They are having their 70th wedding anniversary and a local newspaper reporter asked for the secret and then said, did you ever contemplate divorce? And quick as a flash, he replied, never. Murder many times, but not divorce. (laughs) Now that's the meaning of the word here. God rewards faithfulness. It is naive thinking that God must be on the side of the Babylonians simply because he uses them against the wrong things that his own people are doing. In the short term, it looks that way, but in the long run, it will not be. It's rather like how Jesus put it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There are two roads you can travel. One is a narrow road and the other is a broad road. You get on that narrow road, it's going to be very limiting for you. Maybe some company you can't enjoy. Maybe some baggage that you would like to have. And you cannot. You're on a narrow road. The broad road, you can get more expansive. Many more things can be added to it. But look at the end of the road. When you get on one of those roads, it's leading nowhere but to destruction. When you're on that narrow road, you're getting all of your troubles over now with none to come in eternity, which is just when they begin for the unbeliever. Get the perspective, Jesus says. And Babylon was not going to get away with anything. You look at the end of chapter 2. In fact, the rest of it, you will see, it's full of five woes. That's the opposite of a blessing. A curse that they will bring upon themselves as a consequence of their actions. This was a city associated with a funeral. They were still alive, but as good as dead. Jesus' first sermon was about being blessed. But he also cursed. Go to the lake of Galilee and you'll find there's a lovely spot there. But in Jesus' day, the whole area was urbanized. Not now. Jesus cursed every town around the lake but Tiberia. And the power of Jesus' words, because that is the only place that is now there. And the victims of Babylon use words to bring down this place. We can't break God's law. They will break us. Jump off a cliff. You do not break the law of gravity. It breaks us. And what Babylon did to others would come back on them. How can they be sure God will do this? Verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God knows what he is doing. And he really, really, really will make it work together for ultimate good. How powerful are nations? As powerful as God allows them to be. How powerful is the devil? Not one bit more powerful than God allows him to be. And Habakkuk begins to see the world through new eyes. So he comes to that point in chapter 3, a point of delight. His message was set to music. You get that in the last verse. The Babylonians are coming and he pleads for mercy. 
A prayer God loves to hear and to answer is a prayer for mercy. We hear prayers for health, safety, revival. God responds when he hears prayers for mercy. And he draws together a collage from their Old Testament history, their time in the Exodus when they were delivered out of bondage and they came through that desert place into a promised land. When they dealt with Canaan and they were abundant in the blessings that God gave to them in that place. He goes back and he pictures all of that. He knows who God is and what he can do. And he literally shakes with it all. He joins the Quakers. He becomes a shaker. His knees give way when he thinks about this sovereign power of God. And he rejoices in God's sovereignty. Whatever happens, the fig tree's not budding, no grapes on the vine, the olive crop fails, no food, no sheep, no cattle. He will rejoice in God, his Savior. In modern terms, though my job fail me, though my health fail me, I will bring my doubts. And my questions out into the open. I'll talk to God honestly about that because he can handle it and that's what he would want. Because if I don't speak to him honestly, I'm moving in unreality and I'm going to miss it with God because he only moves in reality. So I'll get real about all of that as I bring it out towards him. But in light of who he is and what he is about in the long run, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will. I will. Now, we need to get very practical. That's that man's experience and something of the way in which he came through. Now, how do we, in our circumstances, move from disappointment to delight? Keep trusting God, He'll work things out. But it's a cliche, isn't it? And sometimes we know the preacher's next point before he gets to it. And by the time he's finished, we're quite sure we could have said it better than him anyway. Fine. That's life. That's how things are. But the question is, how does that happen? That we can move from our disappointments, which are inevitable, right through to a point of delight. Most of us need a new faith. I don't mean that we don't believe. But we need to understand what it is to be faithful and to live that way as Habakkuk is told. So what I want to do as I finish in being very practical regarding this and hopefully leaving you with something that you can remember and you can apply into your life as I need to in mine. If we're talking here about a new faith let's take the word the english word new n-e-w and from habakkuk himself and his approach from disappointments to delight because he understood what it meant to be faithful and how that's worked out let's see what's involved in the n-e-w of having that faith and first Never give up. You see, Habakkuk's name is perhaps not a name, but a title. Because it means wrestle. 
And isn't that exactly what this prophet is doing? Wrestling with God in prayer? I will stand at my watch. I will look to see what he will say to me. He is not giving up. As Hebrews says, you need to persevere. One occasion when we were living in Saffron Walden, I was given the opportunity to go and do some biblical research at Tyndale in Cambridge. I was actually paid to actually go and do that work. Every time I went there, I passed by a very ancient Anglican building and I knew something about that building because I knew that was the place of the famous Charles Simeon, a great minister of God. Back in the late 1700s, he was serving the gospel there in Cambridge and people did not want to know. In fact, the church seat owners, because they had them back in those days, they closed up their pews, walked out of the church. So do you know what Charles Simeon did? He bought some benches and he put them down the aisles so that the ordinary people of Cambridge could come and hear the gospel. The custodians didn't like that, so they locked him out of his own church. So he preached in the open air. Now, he was a, a brilliant intellectual, and he lectured at the university, and fellow professors wanted nothing to do with him. They wouldn't talk to him, and the students wouldn't talk, but they would come in the open air and make fun of him and throw rotten fruit at him as he tried to declare the gospel. This went on for 12 years and there came a day when it just got a bit too much for him. And he went into the woods nearby. And in his exhausted state, he just fell to his knees. And he said, oh God, you've just got to give me a word from the Bible. I'm going to do something I know I shouldn't do. And I would never advise anybody else to do it. But I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to open it at random. And I'm going to point at a verse. Let it be something you are saying to me. I know I shouldn't do that. But I'm desperate. So he opened his Bible at random. And he put his finger upon a verse. And it was in Matthew 27 about a man forced to carry the cross of Jesus who must have taken an interest in that because later we read of that man being a church leader in the book of Acts. And his name, Simeon. And remember the name of this minister? Charles Simeon. And he took that as a word from God. And it strengthened him. And he went back and he preached and eventually they opened the church to him. After all, he was the vicar and they couldn't keep him out. And things turned around. And he ministered there for 54 years. And when he died, it took hours for people and for faculty and for others around Cambridge 
to pay their last respects before the open coffin of this man of the gospel and the difference that he had made there in the city of Cambridge. How do we get through our disappointments? Do you know this saying? When we don't know what to do, let's do what we know to do. So there are many things that we don't know what to do, but we do know what we should do. Read his word, pray, be involved with fellow believers. Catch something of strength that they can give to you by sustaining you. Many things that we know to do. Let's do the things that we know to do in the context of the things we don't understand. Never give up. Keep going. Run at it. Because it's worth it. And second, encourage one another. Habakkuk is trying to encourage the people. The righteous will live by his faith. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Or as the writer to the Hebrews would say, encourage one another daily. Look around and encourage. You know how the word of God puts it, carry each other's burdens? Of course, somebody's got to have a burden for you to be able to help carry it, right? So you're allowed to have a burden for somebody else to be able to come alongside and to help with that burden. My first car was a little mini car. And I had it for quite a long time, way beyond what I should have had it for because it was failing me. And I was very grateful living there in Enfield that I lived on a hill because I would go to the car unsure whether the battery would start up. And it actually got me to know one or two of the neighbours because I would kind of look at them in a doleful sort of way and they would give me a bit of a shove. Now, I noticed this about my neighbours. If in shoving that mini car, it gave a cough of life, they would keep pushing. But if it didn't give a cough of life... They would want to stop and say, Derek, why don't you get yourself another vehicle, which I would have loved to have been able to have done at the time. But a little bit of encouragement. What a difference it makes. I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give to a church is encouragement. Don't you? And we can be involved in distributing that encouragement. The word inspire comes from two Greek words, God breathed. So you know how that scripture is inspired. God has breathed his life into that. So when we encourage other people, we are breathing life into them. When was the last time we were mistaken for the Holy Spirit? When we become people who breathe out encouragement and are inspirational to others... We become like the Holy Spirit to them. So let me encourage you right now. Let me give you a verse that has been a tremendous encouragement to me. Let me breathe out Second Chronicles and chapter 8 of Second Chronicles. God does not judge us by the accomplishment of our hands but by the intention of our hearts. Solomon learned that 
when praying that prayer of dedication for the temple, the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. God is the only person who pays you for the intention of your heart. Think about that. You go to work tomorrow and you stand there looking at the work and the boss comes up and says, what are you doing? And you say, oh, I have it in my heart to work. And he says, I don't pay you for what you have in your heart, but what you have in your head or in your hands. But God does. We want to do something for him. He may not give us the freedom to be able to do that, but he rewards us for it as if we have actually done that. I thought at my age, I will be a lot better Christian than I actually am. I mean, you should be looking at me right now and you should be seeing the halo. And you're not. But you should. I have not become what I have wanted to become. But I can tell you this. I have really wanted to become it. And I always want to become it. And be what he wants me to be. And I know this. When I get to glory, I am going to see rewards for services rendered. And I am going to have to say, but I didn't go there. And I didn't do that. And I will be told, but you would have done if I'd let you, wouldn't you? And in all honesty, I would have to say yes. I would have done if I'd been let to go. And God says, I reward you for the intention of your hearts. If that doesn't blow you away in encouragement, I don't know what will. First, never give up. Second, encourage one another. And third, worship the Lord. Habakkuk isn't just expressing his thoughts. He is worshipping. He is composing a psalm. Chapter 3, 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigioneth. Probably meaning sing to a robust tune. Remember what has happened Recall it and say to God, do it again. Whatever happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior, says Habakkuk. There is something special about bringing our praise and our adoration, our thanksgiving and our worship to him in company. Worship gets our perspective right. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Let's sing together that he is the creator and controller. Let's also pray, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. That's the undeserved blessings of God. Habakkuk calls on us to worship with song and prayer. And I promise you, there is new power we will start to experience if together we do what we must do to worship him in spirit and in truth. This came across to me in a whole fresh way with the renewing of a man 
because he got to that point of not giving up and being encouraged and worshipping the Lord. Came out in a book. For years I would go to Sweden and lecture in a Bible school there. And on the coffee table one year, I found a magazine, and it was in English, and I read this account on the back page. I am told that there is hopes of turning this story, which is true, into a movie. I think it will make a great movie. It's called Aggie, A Girl Without a Country. Back in 1921, two Swedish couples sensed the call of God to go to Zaire at a very remote area. They were rebuffed by the locals, couldn't get anywhere near them. The only contact they could have was with a young boy selling them chickens and they took their opportunity and they led him to their saviour. Malaria apart from other problems, was massive as a problem for them. So the Ericssons left and went back to the headquarters there in Zaire to serve and work from there. But David and Sphereflood stayed put. They said, God has called us and we cannot leave and give up if he's called us to actually be here. And so they stayed with their two-year-old son. They remained to go it alone. Sphere gave birth to a little baby girl. They called her Aina. But Sphere died 17 days later. She was small, malaria, other problems were massive for her. And her frame just couldn't take it. Inside David, something snapped when he buried his 27-year-old young wife and young mother. And he came down the valley back towards the city and he gave his daughter to the Ericsons and he said, I've had it with God. I'm going back to Sweden. I'm finished with God. Eight months later, they died. The Berg, some American missionaries, took the little baby and they gave the name Aggie to her. And they took her with them back to America. They would never return to Zaire because they were worried that the baby might be taken back from them. She grew up. She went to a Bible college. She met a young godly man called Dewey Hurst. They married. They had a son and daughter. Her husband became president of that college there in Minnesota, I went by it just a few weeks ago. A Christian college. She, to this day, does not know how this happened. But a Swedish magazine was left in her mailbox. She was coming home from the vast shopping mall that there is in Minneapolis. And she took this in with her and over a cup of coffee started leaf through the magazine and suddenly she was riveted right awake. She saw a photograph of her own mother, Sphere Flood. She couldn't understand the article but she knew there was somebody at the college who could translate for her. So she got in the car and she went to the college 
And as he translated it, he said, where your mother and your father were serving the Lord, there are now 600 believers. It came to their 25th wedding anniversary and the college wanted to honour their president and his wife. So among other things, they gave them a vacation to Sweden. She was determined to find her real father. She knew that he had remarried. She knew that he had had four more children. She was to learn he had become an alcoholic and recently had had a stroke and was not expected to live many weeks. It was an emotional reunion with her half-brothers. Speaking to her about meeting her father... They said, now we know you're religious, but please don't mention God's name in front of our father because he'll go ballistic. She went to his small apartment. He opened the door, a 73-year-old man living in squalor. He took one look at her and his shoulders went down, his head went down. And he began to sob and say, I never meant to give you up. I never meant for that. And she put her hand on his shoulder and said, it's all right, Dad. It's all right. God took care of me. And he froze. She said, Dad, as she steered him into the living room, sat him down on the settee and sat next to him holding his hand. Would you mind if I tell you a story of what has happened since you left Zaire? And she told this story. And by the end of the afternoon, he was on his knees with his newfound daughter, giving his life afresh to the Lord. And a few weeks later, he died. That's not the end of the story. Because there was an evangelism conference in London. Do you know of High Lee Conference Centre? That's where it was. And the hearse were invited to go representing 110,000 believers. And when they went, they listened to reports. And there was a report from Zaire from the very area where her mother and father had been and how that now hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands are responding to the gospel. She went up to him during the coffee time and said to this man, have you heard of David and Sphere Flood? And he said, have I heard of them? I was the little boy who sold them chickens and they led to the saviour. Well, she introduced herself and he couldn't stop hugging her. You can understand that, can't you? And then he stepped back from her and he said, you have got to come. You have got to see what is happening as the outcome of your mum and dad coming all those years ago. Well, they did go. And they were welcomed by cheering throngs of people. 
And the man hired to carry her cradle back to the headquarters of the mission there in Zaire. He was there, Christian believer now. They went to the mother's grave, just a simple white cross. You can see these things on the web, they're there. And they formed a huge circle and they began to dance as Africans will and to worship and to thank and to praise God for all that he has done, is doing and will do. And later in the church service, the pastor read John 12, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies... It produces many seeds. And Psalm 126, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Never give up. Encourage one another. Worship the Lord. Trust God where we can't see the rock under our feet. Disappointing times. This is how Habakkuk handled it. This is how we can handle it too. Would you join me in prayer? Let's be quiet for a moment as we think about this and its application into our own lives. But as for me, let's sell him, I trust in him. You are my God, my times are in your hands. We worship you, Lord, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our song now is about, O oh God, beyond all praising. What a good way for us to finish because truly he is, but we can nevertheless use our voices to praise him and to worship him corporately. Let's do that, and then we'll close in prayer.